Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast inspired by the Puritan practice of godly conference, or spiritual conversations among believers. These spiritual conversations offer practical spiritual help for Christian living. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Welcome to Ordinary Fellowship. I'm Jeremy Lee, and with me, as always, is Matthew McLaughlin. Hey, Jeremy. We are talking about the Holy Spirit today, but unfortunately, our friend Tim Scott's not able to join us. He has pastoral duties that have uh, taken precedence over our a trivial podcast. So he won't be with us. Hopefully he'll be back with us next week. But for then, you have to suffer through Matthew and I. So that Matthew they do. And me. Sorry. Correct. Got to have correct grammar. We've been talking about the Holy Spirit for several weeks now. We've done some other things in between. Um, but what we're what we're doing, we, we started out talking about who the Holy Spirit is just briefly, and we're mainly concentrating on the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Spirit acts uh, in concert with the Father son, and the Son, and their three great acts, the three great works of God are creation, providence, and redemption. Uh, we've already talked about creation and providence. Uh, we've also talked about the revelation of the Holy Spirit in history, and so now we're we're focusing on the works of Holy Spirit, specifically his his work in redemption. Last week we began. Uh, we we had to talk a little bit about what's called the ordo salutis because that that's the logical order of how the Spirit applies the work of Christ to sinners, and we're following that order in order to explain the work of the Spirit. Um, so. Hopefully, you have some understanding what Order Salutis is from the previous episode. We talked about uh, effectual calling and regeneration, and this this week we're going to move on to the next step in in the logical order, uh, the Order Salutis, and that is conversion and adoption. So, uh, those are the topics for today. Any thoughts before we dive in, Matthew? No, I think we sh- I think we should just dive in. All right, so let's start with conversion. Uh, we, we'll only have a little bit to say about conversion because it dovetails so much with effectual calling and uh, regeneration, but, you know, time constraints, we can't talk about it all in that episode. So uh, let me give you a definition to start off with. This comes from Louis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology. He says that conversion is that act of God whereby he causes the regenerated sinner to turn to him in repentance and faith. So when normally uh, when we talk about salvation, we talk about God's part in salvation being effectual calling and regeneration, and man's response is his conversion. And that, that's true as far as it goes, but we have to remember that God continues to work. It's not as if... He regenerates you and leaves you on your own, and there, all the rest is up to you. But even 
even the repentance and the faith that we have is a work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that works it into our hearts. In Ephesians 2, verse 8, says, Therefore by grace are you saved through faith. That is not of yourself. This is a gift of God. It would be redundant to say the grace is from yourself. Uh, so the point there is obviously that faith is from the Lord. The, the ultimate source, the ultimate cause of anyone's faith in Jesus Christ is God himself. Though it continues to remain your faith, it's not God's faith that he gives to you. It's, it's your faith, but it ultimately comes from God. Uh, the same with repentance. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 talks about the kindness of God leading us to repentance. So it's, it's the work of the Holy Spirit that is the reason why anyone repents and believes the gospel. It's not our own work. So any thoughts about that, Matthew? Well, I mean, if you just, just if you look at it from a linguistic standpoint, the idea of conversion or to convert something or someone requires an outside, an outside force to, to act upon it. You can't convert something, but you can't convert yourself. You can't, uh, no matter how much a toaster wants to become a blender, it will never become a blender. Something has to act upon it for a toaster to be a blender. Right. It'd be a unique ex- experience to convert a toaster to a blender. But that's, well, the Bible gives another example. The leopard can't change the right. spots. But right. Toaster, blenders. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think the Bible is better. <laughs> but it still, so it speaks to the fact that we can't eliminate the role of the spirit in conversion. Right. You have to have an outside force, that being the Holy Spirit, who actually does the work of conversion, even though we have a responsibility involved as well. Right. So this isn't to rob people of responsibility. You must repent and believe, but it's not as if you did it unaided. Right. Right. So this is a this is a good place to talk briefly about why it is that people sometimes have the feeling that Baptists don't believe in the Holy Spirit, um, and I think one of the reasons is is because Baptists have given ammunition <laughs> in this area, and it comes from it comes from the fact it comes from Finneyism and revivalism. Uh, Charles Finney taught that revival and really conversion was just the right uh, using the right means. So if you have the right methods, or I heard someone say earlier today a formula <laughs> that if you use the right formula, the result is predetermined. And and so Finneyism and revivalism really got rid of the work of the Holy Spirit when it comes to conversion. And so and and sadly many Baptists have grabbed on to Finneyism and revivalism. And because of that, there is a sense in which they don't really believe in the Spirit in the way that, biblically speaking, they should. Um, there's, there's, they don't give, anyway, I'll leave it at that. So, do you have any thoughts about that, well, I mean, Matthew? It's just, like you said, it's fundamentally, Finneyism reduces it to a formula, and so, if you reduce it to a formula, then you eliminate the need for the Spirit. Because if I can produce all of the parts needed to get the solution that I want, I 
don't need the Holy Spirit to do anything, and I have effectively eliminated him, even though Fenny wouldn't say that he eliminated the Spirit. He'd still give lip service. Right, he'd give lip service, but... In essence, what he what he and anyone who follows this idea of revivalism does is they eliminate the spirit. Now, there's much more involved in that. And so we would say, if you want to know more about it, Ian Murray has a good book called Revival and Revivalism, where he traces the difference between primarily the First Great Awakening in the 1700s and then Finney and the Second Great Awakening in the 1800s. And so that would give you a better, excellent, more thorough explanation of what all we're talking about here. Right. But so, so there is some truth to the charge that Baptists don't believe in the Spirit in, in the sense that They've taken conversion and and made it just a formula that if you do these things, you come forward at an altar call, say the sinner's prayer, you're you're in. Right. We we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. We had a we had a podcast about altar calls. So if you want to know more about our thoughts on that, you can go to that. Correct. <laughs> so we'll we'll just leave it at that. Um, so um, one one other thing I'd like to say though is that. Um, I think one of the one of the texts that is often used for evangelistic purposes, Revelation three twenty, where it talks about Jesus standing at the door and knocking, and if any man opens, he will come in and sup with him. That is often used in this sense, and the the way it's presented, it seems as if Jesus is on the outside and you're on the other side all by yourself, and it's up to your own willpower and your own strength and your own wisdom to open up the door. Whereas what we're saying when it comes to conversion, if you misuse that verse in this way, is that this, Jesus is on the outside of the door, but the Spirit is also in the room with you on the other side, moving you and giving you the strength and the ability and the desires to even open the door in the first place. So we're not, this isn't some like mechanical thing that you pull yourself up by your own spiritual bootstraps and open the door. We're it's the spirit that carries you to this place. Right. Anyway, that's that's enough for conversion. Let's talk about adoption. This definition for adoption comes from the Baptist uh, Catechism. It says, uh, the question is, what is adoption? And the answer is, adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. We'll develop that more fully later, but first, the Puritans are really helpful in talking about adoption. They actually thought of it, some of them thought of it as the comprehensive blessing of salvation. Normally, in our day, when we think of the comprehensive blessing of salvation, we think of justification, right? Where God forgives guilty sinners on the basis of Christ, death, and righteous life, so that we receive forgiveness and Christ's righteousness. That's that's what justification is all about. And so the picture in justification is that God is a judge acquitting sinners because of what Christ did. Um, and that is a tremendous blessing of the grace of God to be forgiven and have the righteousness of God. Without Without these benefits, no one would ever no one would be saved, no one would have eternal life. So we're not trying to downplay the blessings of this, but the picture in adoption seems to me to even be a greater picture 
because it's instead of being a legal picture, it's a familial picture where God is a father, Christ is the elder brother, and sinners are not only being forgiven and receiving the righteousness of God, but they're being welcomed into the family of God. And that has tremendous benefits. Right. And I think it's important for us to just truly take the time to pause and consider this idea about what it is that God is doing in adoption. And we'll flush this out, but just as we begin, it should cause us to be, to almost shudder to think that the God of the universe, who knows who we are, he understands us, he knows all of our flaws, still in his mercy and his kindness, chooses not just to redeem us, but to allow us to be called his sons. That is an astonishing and amazing blessing that I think sometimes, if we're not careful, we can fly past it because we understand it on an academic sense, but we don't, or a theological level, but we don't actually comprehend what that act, what the words actually mean. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't necessarily get into our heart. Right. Hopefully, some of what we'll talk about will help in that way. The Bible speaks of adoption in terms of the past, present, and the future. Um, in the before history began, the Father elected a people whom He decided He would adopt as His own. They would be part of His family. We see that that comes from Ephesians chapter one and verse five. So, before history began, it's not. Like Tim told us last week, talking about eternity past is an oxymoron. So uh, just (laughs) before the world was established, the Father elected a people he decided he would adopt. And then within history, Christ came, and his work paid the redemption price. So the Father planned to to adopt many sons, and Christ willingly came into the world to pay the price so that the father could adopt these sons just justly and Christ did that work we read about it in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5 um, at the beginning of our podcast so the father elects people Christ works to pay the redemption price all of this happened in the past um, but adoption is a present reality as well Um, Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, I'll read this now, um, says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we right now are made sons of God by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we have to wait for in the future. If If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have repented and embrace the gospel, then you've been made a child of God, a son of God, by the Holy Spirit. And then even as we continue to mature in our faith and we become more like Christ, we start bearing family resemblance, that that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll talk about that more because that that is, this is another way of talking about sanctification, which we'll talk about in future episodes. Um, but right now this is happening. So 
God, the Holy Trinity, worked in time past to adopt. He's currently working, making sinners his children by the work of the Holy Spirit. And then in in the future, our sonship will be fully revealed uh, as 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2 tells us. So we are sons of God right now. It's not something we wait for, but the fullness of that reality waits for a time in the future. And again, we'll talk about this later when we get to uh, a discussion about glorification, because that that's what this deals with. So you can see even in this how the Puritans would talk about this as a comprehensive blessing of salvation, because we have the work of the Father electing, Christ paying the price, our coming to faith is being adopted in the present, our sanctification is our continuing in maturity, and being fully sons of God is our glorification. So you can see easily how that works and has made the comprehensive blessing of salvation. So basically what we see is that how adoption expands and covers the the totality of eternity. It covers the totality of our life. There's never been a moment where we haven't in some way interacted with adoption, whether that is the fact, as Jeremy said, that God elected a people whom he will adopt, the fact that Christ paid the price then therefore we're in the process of sanctification and ultimately we will be glorified. All of those interact with adoption and have adoption affect affect them. And we'll talk about most of those in future episodes, how that Holy Spirit interacts. But it's just important to see that there's no place where we can get outside of or escape from the ramifications of adoption upon our lives. Right. So then... So then we can say that adoption is a work of the Trinity, as we go back to what Jeremy read at the beginning, Galatians 4. But not only that, but what we also need to understand is how does adoption then, we understand that it's comprehensive, it affects every area of our life, our Christian life, but specifically what are those, what does that look like? So the Baptist Catechism lists some benefits of adoption, and we want to spend some time talking about a few of them in the time we have left. Confession. Confession. Yes, confession. Not catechism, confession. Confession lists some benefits of adoption. And so one of the the first thing we want to talk about is the fact that in, in the confession, it says that his name is placed on us. So Jeremy, how is the fact that God's name being placed on it, how is that a benefit that comes from adoption? Well, um, I think we see in the catechism answer, it says that we're received into the number. So this, I think that relates to that, being received into the number. And it's it's just like an adoption that we have, where uh, when you're officially adopted, you not o- you're not only living with the family, but you take on the last name. You are for all intents and purposes, you are part of that family. You carry the last name. Um, that means you belong to them. And I think that's the idea, that you be- that you now belong to God. He's yours, so his name is on you. And I think we see this in uh, the Ten Commandments when 
when it's when we're told when we're commanded not to use the Lord's name in vain because God's name is on us um, because we've been adopted in His family when we behave or act in a way that's contrary to God's will we are bringing shame on God and using His name in vain because our behavior is a reflection of who God is. This is a blessing, yes, but it's also a warning. Um, his name is on us, and we ought to act accordingly. Um, in addition, the Aaronic blessing in Numbers chapter 6, after it gives the blessing, uh, Moses or the Lord says, in this way you will put my name on your people. So um, I I think it also must have to do with blessing itself. That So it's a, it's a blessing in and of itself to be a part of the family of God. You going to sing the song? No, I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the I the reality that we are now identified with God that in and of itself is the blessing that comes from adoption. Right. We're no longer so it, this leads us into the next thing we want to talk about in the, But we're we're as Romans eight fifteen says, we belong to God not as slaves, but as sons. Right, which <laughs> is which is which is the second thing we're going to talk yeah. about is the fact that we have been we have been received the spirit of adoption, and so that leads us to what Jim was talking about there in um, Romans eight fifteen in that. So before our name is slave, and now our name is son, and. You just stop and you think how the difference in how a slave interacts with the master as opposed to how a son interacts with his father. So that ties in the first one to the second ones. But, Jamie, what is the spirit of adoption? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> I think the idea of calling the spirit of uh, the spirit of adoption is is that it just make it associates the spirit with this work. He's the. It's not that the father and son don't do it, but what we've seen as we've talked about the spirit throughout this, these episodes, is that the spirit is all, always the one. I know this isn't the right way to talk, but closest to us, he's the ones getting his hands dirty and and working with us. So, um, so I think I think that's the idea that it just connects the spirit closely to this work and close to us. That he he's our connection on earth to heaven. He he's what connects us to Christ, and Christ then connects us to the Father, and he's the one that brings us into the family. I I think that's the idea. Yeah, I think that's good. I think another way for us to understand this is there's a quote from Jeremiah Burroughs that says that this this spirit enlightens our mind sanctifies our hearts, makes God's wisdom and will known to us, guides us to eternal life, yes, works the entire work of salvation in us, and seals it to us unto the day of redemption. Or to say it, or to explain this quote a little bit, it's what you were talking about, that the Holy Spirit is the one who runs the play. He's the one who we interact with more, more, most closely. We don't interact with the Father and the Son. We do interact with but not in the same way as we interact with the Spirit. Right. Well, and I think one of the keys is what you talked about 
contrast between slavery and sons because slaves obey because if they don't, they're going to get it. Right. Right? Um, they're going to be hurting if they don't. Sons obey because they honor the father and they love the father. Um, that's a very different kind of obedience. Um, in a sense, we we could obey God as slaves or servants because we owe him that. Right. But God has given us, by adopting us into his family, has given us so much better reason to obey him and that he's a loving father who cares for us. And so it, being adopted in the family should change the way we view obedience to God. It's not begrudging obedience. It's willing and happy obedience because of who God is to us. Yeah, which leads us to the third, the third benefit mentioned in the confession, which is that we have access to the throne of grace with boldness and are enabled to cry out, Abba. So, how, why is it so important? I think it's, we can understand it simply, but just to explain it, to expound upon it, why is it important that we can have access to the throne of grace and are able to cry out, Abba? Well, in my notes, and that's what you're reading from, I said enabled, but I think a better way to say it is is that we have the right. And we have to be careful because saying that it's a right, it means it's something that's owed to us, and God doesn't really owe us anything. Uh, so maybe privilege would be a w- better way of saying it. So we're privileged to have this kind of access to God. So one of the things that I think we see with adoption is is prayer. You could petition a judge. Um, so in that sense, there would be prayer, even if we talk about it in terms of justification. But again, this this seems to me, as we're talking about obedience, but the difference between a slave and a son, and we're talking about an acquitted, an acquitted sinner versus versus a son and how they pray to God. Um, One would be more formal and legal, the other would be more personal and relational. Um, So it it just shows the intimacy of prayer, uh, that we can have that kind of access to the God of the universe, the God who made the stars. It's no wonder David reacted the way he did in the Psalms when he looked to the skies and and said, "What, what what am I that you would think of me? Um, it, it, and this to me really shows the tremendous blessing of what it means to be adopted into the family of God, to have that kind of access to the throne room of the Lord of eternity is beyond our ability to comprehend. Yeah. It goes back to, as we were talking about, a servant can ask um, his master something but he always asks in fear and trepidation and there's no assurance that he's even going to receive a response a son asks his father because he knows his father loves him and is seeking to do what is best for him and so he he can tell his father whatever he wants to tell him because he he just he can pour his heart out and that's what we see we are granted by adoption and we see that in Jesus when he taught when he taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew especially before it begins he tells us not to pray like the pagans but 
where we repeat ourselves uh, with vain repetition, but we're to pray knowing that the Father already knows what we need. And that he knows, already knows because he cares about us and is intimately involved in our lives. So um, we're not we're not asking the same way pagans are. We're not trying to put God's hand behind his back and make him give us what we need. We have a willing father who's ready to give us whatever we need. That's why William Spurstow, from his comment, is apt. He says, God's promises are like a bag full of coins that God unties and pours out at the feet of his adopted children, saying, take what you will. That's that's what <laughs> prayer is all about. Right. Another aspect of this fact that we can call out and call God Abba is that in that we receive assurance that we truly are we are truly the sons of God. So the fact that we can talk to God and we, we can enter into the throne room is an assurance that we actually belong to him because God can't allow sin into his presence. And so the fact that we can enter in demonstrates that we belong to him because we've been covered by the blood of Jesus. And so therefore we can be granted assurance from that. So anything you want to say on that one? Nope. All right, so then we'll go on, and the confession says that then we are pitied, protected, and provided for. So, Jeremy, let's start with this. What's it mean to be pitied? It means God's merciful and kind to us. Right. He's gentle to us. So how is the fact that God's merciful, who will protect you, will provide for I think, if we're honest, that's kind of self-explanatory what that one means. But pity just means that he's not a harsh father. Right. Unlike me sometimes. (laughs) Which leads to the next one, that even though he's not a harsh father, he still chastens us, but he does not cast us off. Right. He dis God disciplines us. He's he's not the indulgent father that lets his children get away with anything because he's so loving, or the indulgent mother. That's usually the case. (laughs) And uh, God does chasten his sons. Um and this isn't punishment. This is to get us back in line. Right. God doesn't let us wander into sin because sin is harmful. Uh, it it will hurt you. So God, God is in that way. He's protecting us and and making us holy by chastening us. But He's not going to cast us off. So when we are receiving the chastisement of the Lord, we don't need to lose heart that this is some sign that God has cast us off forever. Uh, but we need to see this as a way of God calling us back to himself, chastening us, trying to wake us up in our sins and turn us back to him. And that that's really what it's all about. God, the Bible actually says if God doesn't chasten you, you're not a son. Right. So even though it's hard, it ought to be welcome in that sense. Right. So I think we can tie this one in with the first one we talked about, the fact that God places his name on us. And think of it in this regard. A good parent will always seek to correct and seek to get the best out of their children. But when their children chooses choose to do not to listen, we'll put it that way, they choose not to listen, it does not mean that they then lose their last name. They're still connected to their family. And so, in the same way, God God chastens us, but he doesn't remove us. He doesn't re- remove that adoption from us. Once he's granted it to us, 
we we keep it. But that also that leads to the next thing that we can see this, as this all as these all tie together, in that we are sealed by the Spirit. Or to say it another way, God marks us belonging to Him, and by marking Him, then the last thing we'll look at them together because they both come out of Ephesians one thirteen and fourteen is that. Since we're sealed, since God marks us as belonging to him, we are then granted an inheritance. So, Jeremy, you have Ephesians 1. You want to read verses 13 and 14? Yeah. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How does this help us? understand adoption what benefit do we gain from this inheritance so it 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 really dovetails with the with the chastening and not casting us off so god has given us a spirit he marks us off as belonging to him he puts his name on us so we're his right and he's not going to cast us off we the spirit is also an inheritance and in a guarantee so He's a guarantee that we'll receive the full inheritance in time. So he's a down payment. He's a deposit with the promise that the rest is going to come in the future. So this is another way of saying we guarantee that you're not going to be cast off. God has given you the Spirit. He has began this work in you, and he will complete it until the end. Um, And so we, we have this inheritance Ultimately, that inheritance, we have a bit of it now. We experience some of it now, but ultimately it will be fully experienced when we're glorified, and and the inheritance, of course, is the kingdom of God, Um, which obviously we don't have all of it because we continue to sin and we live in a fallen, sinful world. But one day, our, our sin and this fallen world will be changed and will become uh, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, um, where everyone will know him, and that will be when we have our full inheritance. We will be truly the sons of God, and and we'll see God as he truly is then, as, as the Bible promises. So that being a child of God is a, um, is a guarantee that will have the future inheritance. And one of the things I I think we should say is just it's saying sons here. The reason is is because in in biblical times the sons were the ones who received the inheritance. Children in general didn't receive the inheritance. It was sons who received the inheritance. So we're called sons not because um, only men are children of sons of God. But we're called the metaphor point. The point of the metaphor is that we're the ones that inherit the blessings. So our elder brother, um, he he receives a double portion, and he's going to. The rest of the inheritance will be shared with all of us who are sons of God. Whether you're a man or a woman, that's irrelevant. Um, we're we're people who receive the inheritance. The only way w- women received inheritance in biblical times is if their father had no no sons. If they had no brothers, then the women would re- receive the inheritance. But that's why it's sons instead of children of God or anything like that. So do any 
anything else we need to you want to say about adoption as we come to the end? No, I think, okay. I think we're good. So then we close with this thought. May we be ever grateful and rejoicing that we have been granted the spirit of adoption, but may that also spur us and cause us to live up to the name which we have been given. We thank you for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, a podcast ministry of Two Rivers Community Church. For more information about Two Rivers, you can find it on our website at www.tworiverscc.org. We look forward to your questions, your comments, and even hopeful and dreaded hate mail at ordinaryfellowship at gmail.com. Please follow us on Facebook at Ordinary Fellowship and like, subscribe, and rate this podcast on whatever service you listen to us on. But for now, we want to thank you once again for listening to this episode of Ordinary Fellowship, where we're striving to have spiritual conversations for practical Christian living.